Welcome to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm pleased to be joined this week by Patrick Kincaid, who is currently the rector of Knott Hall on campus, but has some background elsewhere with Notre Dame, and we're going to get into that and talk about his life and his story. So welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So if you would just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience. Sure, absolutely. So as you said, my name is Patrick. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. That's where I grew up. And I came to Notre Dame as a graduate student in 2010, completed the ACE program. So I taught in Richmond, Virginia for two years. I completed my master's degree on campus over the summers. Yeah, and I've been a rector since 2014. So I'm in the beginning part of my sixth year as rector on campus. So you grew up in Cleveland. Tell us about your family and, and that dynamic while you were growing up. Sure. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. My parents were very formative in my faith development as a, as a child. Mass and prayer was a very important part of our, our household and our family. And so I really understood that to be something that I wanted to be part of my life moving forward because it was so formative for me as, as a child. And both with my older brothers being four and six years older than me, uh, and, my, and my parents just sort of having that sort of early mentorship and early role in my life of, of pointing me towards faith, pointing me towards spirituality. And did you also integrate that with Catholic education? What was that like? So I attended public schools through eighth grade, but I attended um, PSR, Parish School Religions, what we call it in the mm-hmm, Diocese of sure. Cleveland. Um, so I attended that after school Wednesday nights to complete all the sacramental prep and things like that. Right. So public school was is a obviously nothing involved in that spiritually but but after after school with friends and then with my family it was an important part of before meals and then in the evenings prayer life and and the faith mass on Sundays those things were, were integral to life experience and to everything we did my brothers were older than me and, and very busy with sports and activities on the weekends but mass was always the priority for mm-hmm. for my mom and dad and so they made that clear and that was that was really important to me and a very important thing that stood out to me about my upbringing was knowing how the priority they placed on mass. You plan it first. Right. Everything else either fell into line afterwards or just didn't happen. You <laughs> yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wait, there's little surprises. Like right. <laughs> <laughs> we know Sunday's coming or right. Saturday night, you know, that's good. And what about high school? High school, I think would be the first part of my spiritual formation uh, in terms of education mm-hmm. outside of PSR, which was Really great, but definitely a very surface level. Mm-hmm. But high school, I had the opportunity to go to a, a Catholic high school in the Diocese of Cleveland, which was incredibly formative in my life. I went to St. Ignatius High School, and the people there were really instrumental in, in me growing in, in who I wanted to be, but also knowing the type of person that I wanted to, to be for other people. I received an incredible education and was instructed in, in great ways in, in all the, the courses, but for me, my experience was about becoming better for other people as opposed to just attaining knowledge and attaining intellect and things like that. So it was very important for me at St. Ignatius High School. Was that your first encounter with Ignatian spirituality and the Jesuits, and what impact did that have on you? It was. Yeah, it was. Um, I had heard of, of the Jesuits. I heard of heard of Ignatius growing up. It had been a thing I'd heard about quite a bit, but actually being there and experiencing Ignatian spirituality and actually being taught by Jesuit priests and interacting with them in mentorship roles was very formative for me and really showed me the ways of praying with imagination and praying with intentionality in ways that I hadn't previously experienced. It was really important to me as sort of a foundation for where my prayer life is currently. And what about this aspect of Cleveland? I've always known Clevelanders to be very loyal (laughs) to their city and to each other. Tell us some about that, if you would. 
Cleveland is a place that people like to, to put down and make fun of. I tend to be a pretty strong Cleveland apologist. I love it. It's a, it's a great spot. It's right on the lake, plenty to do, three major sports, but also an incredible cultural scene, um, mm-hmm. a thriving arts scene. I think it's a place that's really sort of just the subject of jokes because people tend to be lazy when they're telling jokes and they mm-hmm. don't think, they don't think with, with a lot of thoughtfulness about things. But for me, yeah, it was a very important part of my upbringing was kind of being from an underdog city. Mm-hmm. I kind of, even living there, even being a young person, you can kind of get the sense from just outside noise about the mistake on the lake, things like mm-hmm. that. Like you, you hear these outside things and it was all I'd ever known before I moved away. Mm. But for me, it was, a, it was an incredible place to grow up and be from. Being close to the water was really important to me. I love time on the lake and on the water, just sort of looking out at the waves from the beach and from the pier. That was really important and just such, a, such an incredible place to be from. What were some of the moments in your childhood where you started to really think about taking on the faith as your own or maybe what God was asking you to do with your life or even any struggles that you had with your life and your faith during your childhood? Primary one would be my, um, my father experienced a pretty serious illness when, when I was growing up. What we later found out was a brain tumor causing pretty significant dementia and, and wow. neurodegenerative decline. Basically, that started around the time when I was in middle school, mm. and so that was very formative for me because I was really experiencing a lot of suffering and seeing him go through a lot of pain and, yeah. and seeing my mother work two jobs and take care of him and do all those sort of very, very hard things that she was doing. And that was something where I really relied upon my faith in a way that I didn't anticipate ever having to, yeah. and it, it really strengthened so it. Yeah, it was definitely something that was really, really a challenge in the moment. I didn't really make sense of it, but corresponded with my time at arriving at St. Ignatius High School Mm. and the people there, uh, in particular two Jesuit priests and uh, two teachers there that really took me under their wing and sort of served in in a father figure role to me and sort of helped me do basic things like learn how to tie a tie and shave and things like that, but also showed me the way to be a a holy person and to to be a Christian man and to, to care for others. I'd say that was something that was very formative for me, figuring out what my faith was going to mean to my life because... During that period of my life, my faith was really everything, the thing that necessitated my, my existence and helped me connect with my family and things like that. Mm-hmm. And how, how did that progress with your dad? Was that during high school that that was all happening? Yeah, so then throughout high school, um, his condition pretty significantly declined. He sort of lost most cognitive function, until, and so the last few years of his life, he sort of was just uh, in a bed without much cognitive function. Mm. So. So I would go visit him and pray and be with him, but there was not much. There's really no response and no acknowledgement. He didn't recognize anybody or didn't really have much. Not much was registering uh, mm. with him in that way. So that was that was a, a very challenging time to sort of figure out encountering suffering in that way, encountering it seemed to be pain. It seemed like he was in a lot of pain. I think that was really hard for me to see. Yeah. But also the the human element of, of watching my mother really experience and go through such a such hard thing with, with her spouse seeing that was just was incredibly difficult and uh, something that, that drew me back to faith and drew me towards connecting in a particular way to Our Lady of Sorrows. Mm-hmm. And so that was... Little did you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that was something that really helped Notre Dame make a lot of sense and feel like home for me when I arrived here because my devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows during that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, it made me think of Mary as yep. you talked about your sure. mom and the suffering that she endured watching her son die. It's not a given, though, that people will deepen their faith in right. in experiences of great suffering. A lot right. of times people will experience a loss of faith or mm-hmm. are wondering, where is God in all this, in right. this hardship and this suffering? Yeah. For you as a young man, 
needing your dad and having to find those father figures elsewhere. What do you attribute that to that it caused you to deepen your faith rather than, than turn away from it? I think for me, it was in part out of, out of duty and out of respect for, for my father. Like faith was very important to him and it was mm-hmm. something that cared about deeply. So I wanted to sort of on the first in the first part of things, give it my best effort to remain with, with the faith <laughs> and kind of what it would have been so important to him as a, as a means of connecting with him in some yeah. way. And then for me, it was, it was the, the people at my high school that really, that sort of helped me put a proper framework around what was happening, but also acknowledging how hard it was mm-hmm. and never, never diminishing it in any way, but also providing a, a, a spiritual and prayerful framework for me to, to work from. So Father Ray Guillaume and uh, Father Tim Kisicki were two Jesuit priests that really took me under their wing and, and cared for me in a really profound spiritual way and kind of helped me provide a context for what was happening. And mm-hmm. then there were two teachers, Tim Grady and Jim Skrull, that really in a, in, in a way pointed me towards how to act and how to be a person, how to be a man. They were in charge of some of the service outreach programs that were happening at my high school. And they, beyond just helping me connect with the community, they modeled for me how to live an intentional life and a life for others. And so... Those things directly contributed to me being able to make some sense of what was happening. I didn't have it all figured out, of course, sure. but it allowed me to at least have a, a larger frame of reference for the challenges that I was facing and for what was happening and kind of knowing the the importance of, of remaining faithful and steadfast through through great struggle. There's really no one thing that, that any of them did, but kind of as a unit, uh, in addition to the great support from my mother and my older brothers, uh, really helped me to to care for other people. And I think in reaching out to other people, it allowed me to see that great blessings I had in my life and the responsibility I had to kind of live up to my father's great legacy by trying to be the best person I could. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. And if you don't mind, if you could tell us, sometimes death comes very quickly, suddenly, and, and the shock is is very hard to deal with. And other times, like with your dad, it's a, it's a long, long road. Mm-hmm. So when he finally passed, how did your family respond to that, given all that you had been through up to that point? You're very correct in saying it was, it was a long road. He, before my sophomore year of high school, he was placed on hospice, and it seemed like it was an any-day any situation that he might pass. He actually uh, didn't pass till after my freshman year of college, so wow. almost four full years later. I think when, when he did pass, it was an important opportunity for us to reflect on who he was before the illness came and to celebrate his life that way because for so long we had been existing in this space where he was someone completely other than who he was when healthy. And so I think it was important for my brothers and I to hear from my mom and hear from my aunts and uncles kind of stories about my dad and things that he had done and who he was when he was younger. And so my mom actually put together a book of letters that people wrote kind of just stories about about my father and so that was really wonderful but when he did pass I think it was although it was uh, in some ways expected I don't think it made it any easier right Uh, because it was definitely a there was a finality to it Mm -hmm. at that point I think it was a really hard thing to be a part of the the funeral services and everything my my brothers and I all three of us did the eulogy together Mm -hmm. I think that was a really important bonding moment for us um, to just stand up there together and kind of present in some ways, the final liturgical word. I guess eulogy is not part of the, the liturgy <laughs> itself, but to present the final words in in the in our parish of 
who our father was to us. Uh, that was really important. And those two Jesuit priests who I'd mentioned, Father Ray Gio and Father Tim Kosicki, uh, were both traveling and doing various things. It was the summer when he passed, and they were both very far away, and they both made it a point to travel back to celebrate the funeral. Sure. And so that was yet another affirmation of how much they cared and how deeply they they served the mission of, of the church. Yeah, that even in this tragedy, God was with you through these really important people for you. Yep. Well, thank you. That's really insightful and I think speaks to a lot of themes that, that people go through mm-hmm. at different times of life and how to grapple with suffering and death. Yeah. Let's do turn to college, though. Sure. So you, you went to college. What was that discernment like about where you would go to college and what you would study? Tell us yeah. some about that, if you would. So my senior year of high school, uh, my father was obviously very ill at that point, and it was sort of very tenuous what his, what his condition might be. And I was actually very interested in entering the, the Jesuits at that point, mm-hmm. uh, becoming a priest. But the novitiate at the time was in Detroit, and I was in Cleveland. And so I really felt a responsibility to remain close to Cleveland in order to be kind of with my father for however long he was going to be with us. So John Carroll University is a Jesuit university just outside of Cleveland on the east side and um, a really great place for me and a place that made sense to go to. And so I received a great education there, but it wasn't the first place that came to mind when I was thinking about colleges. I was thinking about places far away and uh-huh. a lot of different things, yeah. but it really made, made sense as a, as a great academic institution and a great place for the, the Jesuit mission, but also as a place that would allow me to remain close to family for kind of the very uncertain times that were ahead for, mm-hmm. for our family. Mm-hmm. And then as you were in college, you mentioned your dad passed away, and there was a finality to that, and mm-hmm. of course an aftermath of, of making sense of that, but also this discernment piece about, right. is life with the Jesuits for me, is it right. not? Were there some decision points that happened throughout your time at John Carroll that illuminated the future for you? Yeah, absolutely. There was some really great Jesuit priests on campus there at John Carroll that I both worked with as my professors, but also in campus ministry and things like that. And they were, I think, really, really instrumental in me thinking about how I best wanted to serve in the church. I think I, I knew exactly kind of how I wanted to live my life, but I was just trying to figure out the, the way, the kind of the, the way that that might take the, the forum I might serve in. And so there's any number of ways to serve well in the church. And mm-hmm. so while I was, while I was in school uh, in undergrad, I discerned that the priesthood wasn't where I was called, but serving in the church certainly was. And so that was around the time when I was introduced to the Alliance for Catholic Education Mm -hmm. at Notre Dame and began to think about teaching. I'd always been interested in teaching, given just the impossible-to-describe impact that the teachers in high school had had on me and the way that they so deeply took me from a place of of great darkness and allowed me to to really flourish and, and become somebody that could serve well in the church, which is not something I could have envisioned for myself when I was younger. And so I viewed myself and teaching as a way to, to possibly have a similar impact on, on other folks and, and, and students myself. Yeah, a lot of times it's that gratitude when we realize how much we've been given, whether right. in terms of forgiveness or grace or solace mm-hmm. during suffering, right. that our response sometimes is to well, I want to, I want to do that for other people as well, mm-hmm. which resonates with, with your Ignatian background and spirituality, yep. and and the fact that it happened in an educational institution that you were so affected. So that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What was the process like, of, applying for, getting into ACE, experiencing, 
take classes in the summer and then right. and then go to teach? Yeah, so I was I was looking at a number of different programs. But there's a pretty clear theme in my life of always trying to like make my dad proud in, in some way. <laughs> my dad absolutely sure. loves Notre Dame. And yeah. he, so growing up, it was just like a part of our Saturdays watching Lou Holtz and, and the Irish play. And, <laughs> and so, so for me, when I was looking at various programs, I was very interested in Notre Dame, but wasn't, didn't want to make a decision just because of that. And meeting some of the folks in the ACE program here, it really reminded me of so many great mentors that I'd had in, in, in high school and in my life. And I, I knew it was, these are the type of people that I would be proud to serve with. And and the University of Notre Dame was a place that I was really looking to enhance both my own education and my own intellect, but also to to serve the world in the way that Notre Dame does. And so, so for me, that that's what led me to come to, to, to the ACE program. And so, yes, I graduated in May, the end of May, and then two days later, I was started started classes on <laughs> campus here. So, so it was a very no rest for the weary. <laughs> it, was, it was very it's a very quick turnaround. But wow, what, what a what a special, incredible group of people that I was a part of here. Just people that really wanted to serve, just had a profound desire to serve. And then ACE provides this beautiful formation of thinking about that in the, in the larger context of the church and of building up the kingdom. And so it was such an incredible experience. And people that, people that I met, just really some of the best people I've ever known, my peers and also the professors and the, the pastoral team in ACE, just such incredible people that, that really showed me what was possible in terms of serving the church and serving in Catholic schools and how important Catholic schools were and get really gave me a deep appreciation for the history of our church and how our Catholic school system was really built on the backs of religious sisters who, who worked so incredibly hard for, for no pay at all. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the opportunity to be a part of that legacy was such an honor to me and the opportunity to be a part of, of Notre Dame at all was just this incredible honor. And so I kind of thought at some point that feeling of being overwhelmed with honor would, would go away, but it, it hasn't uh, yeah. you know, this many years later. Just this, this place is, is, is a special place to me. My father, before he was ill, was a traveling salesman, and he would make all sorts of trips to Chicago and Detroit, Grand Rapids, and all sorts of places. And I knew that at least a, a few times he'd stopped on campus and w- went to the grotto. So, yeah. so for me, I, I like to imagine where he walked on campus and where he was. And so... So for me, every every stone on this campus is sacred, and every place is a possible place uh, connecting to to loved ones for me, and so that makes it even more special to me. Yeah, that it's so tied up with your past and right. someone who is so dear to you, and I'm sure he was really proud to <laughs> to know that his son was was here and looking down on you and praying for you. Yeah. What about this placement in Richmond? Did you have any say in that, or what was that like? <laughs> yeah, I had no say at all in that, which was which was great. It's health. It was healthy for me to have yeah. just sort of like I'll go anywhere, <laughs> wherever you want. And Send so, me, Lord. <laughs> exactly. Um, and yeah, so we we lived in a in a former convent in Petersburg, Virginia, which is about thirty five minutes south of Richmond. And yeah, what a what a beautiful place that was. Kind of similar to what I mentioned about Cleveland. Petersburg is often the butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. In Richmond or in in, the, in Virginia, people yeah. sort of make fun of it. It's a city with somewhat of a high crime rate and some a lot of poverty. But the people there so wonderful, so welcoming to a bunch of people from from out of town who just showed up at this convent. And and so then I became sort of an apologist for the great city of Petersburg, Virginia, <laughs> and I love it. I if I could go back every few months, I would. But my schedule isn't allowed. But it's such a beautiful place, and the, really the Richmond. Richmond metro area such a such a great area and I really loved being there and teaching and and serving with my my housemates who 
really taught me a great deal about how to be a better person, how to grow, how to how to care for others. Living in community certainly has its challenges, but mm-hmm. certainly was such a formative thing for me in, in finding out different people's perspectives and kind of how they live, how they what what they do, how they work. And that was a really important thing for me to be to be a part of beyond just because in, in college, college roommates are one thing, but when you're living in the working world with other people in an intentional, prayerful community, it's How a often totally do you different wash thing. the dishes? <laughs> what kind of groceries do you purchase? Right. Yeah, so things like that were great, but also just seeing the the different ways that we, we pray because yeah, we, we, pray. we would pray together yeah. weekly and have meals. Uh, and so just seeing how somebody's hard day could be lifted up mm. and, and listened to well by a community. And I was the beneficiary of that. My uh, my roommate there, Kevin, was an 08 graduate of Notre Dame. And he he and I were just really close. We we sort of bonded very quickly. Uh, we had very similar interests in a lot of ways. And we he was incredibly important, incredibly instrumental in me making it through the whole ACE experience because it's a brand new city, brand new school, everything's brand new. But he and I really just were able to have some really important discussions about life, mm-hmm. faith, and things like that. And so he he's somebody that I still look to as a, as a dear friend and somebody that was really important in my faith journey. And they often say that the first year of teaching is by far the hardest, or just there's so much there. Mm-hmm. So what was that like for you? A bit of training in education that first summer, but then here yeah. you are, a first-year teacher. Right. How did that go for you? It was definitely very challenging. I was I was grateful that my my first summer here, I, I met two, or met many wonderful people, but I had two dear friends, Mark and Steven, that really I, I kind of called a lot there in Montgomery, Alabama, and Oklahoma City. Uh-huh. And so we called a lot because we were teaching similar subjects and uh-huh. similar grade levels. And so we, we'd call each other and just say, can you believe this happened? They'd be like, oh, yeah, I can't <laughs> believe that. That happened last Tuesday to me. <laughs> but for me, it was, it was such an incredible chance to work with young people and to make faith a part of everything for me and to, to really just work so hard to try to make a lesson great and then see it not go great <laughs> and then know that I was still going to work just as hard to make the next lesson great and learn from that first experience. So I think that's first year teaching kind of in a nutshell is feeling like you're always coming up short, but still vowing to do better. I, I had incredible support from the ACE community at large, but also dear friends that were just incredibly supportive to me. And hopefully I was to them as well. Mm-hmm. Did you get any hints of the impact that you were making? You talked about education being attractive to you because you had had people who had impacted you in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Did you get any of the hints of that even in a, in a couple of years of teaching that you were making a positive impact on these future leaders, citizens of the world? Yeah, I think so. I think the majority of that came from out of the classroom situations, so extracurriculars and things like that when I was serving as a basketball coach or things like that. Um, a lot of times that was when you kind of have an informal yet, you know, very profound conversation with somebody. It's sort of hard to do that in front of a classroom with, with, with students. But for me, yeah, I, I think I definitely never rose to the level of the people that mentored me, uh, which I never could have. So I never, never expected to, but I, I was incredibly blessed to, to experience a lot of, a lot of love and a lot of people telling me some really, really kind things about, mm-hmm. about my impact on their life and things like that. And so that was, that was a huge honor and something I attribute entirely to the people that formed me. I certainly worked as hard as I could, but I think the person that I was and the person that I am is so much rooted in the, in the people that, that have made me who I am and the people that have 
gone so far out of their way to to form me and to to help me see with very clear eyes the the importance of faith and the importance of of caring for other people and so any successes i had i i, I had in, in in my three years of teaching i would attribute entirely to, to those folks that formed me in a lot of ways i think in our life of faith we realize that we're not completely original that in many ways we're affected by the people and we mirror the people who who mean the most to us so for mm-hmm. you your dad talked about how he made such an impact on you and wanting to continue to make him proud these teaching mentors and priests mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, you're, you're mirroring that, or as you, as you grew into adulthood, seemed to have a chance to mirror those beautiful things that you had received yeah. to others and hoping that they would pick that up. I mean, that's, that's part of what we're talking about when we talk about holiness and the saints. Is It's not that our life will go exactly the same as these people, but in our time, in our way, we want to mirror some of these principles and behaviors that, right. that made the most impact on us. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, that's so much of of what I've done in my life is just trying to not replicate, but to sort of reimagine and implement into my strengths the the great things I've seen people before me do. And so knowing that I'm not really skilled or capable at their level fully, uh, but just trying my best uh, and seeing, because I, I've really been the recipient of grace that I couldn't imagine and, 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 and grace that I uh, am not deserving of, but just trying to, in some ways, be that for other people is just such a profound honor because I think that's what allows me to pray well and allows me to to live my faith in the best way I can is just seeing there are so many people before me who cared so deeply about me, cared so deeply about the people before me, that how can I do anything but give my best and try everything possible to, to serve well and to, to build up the kingdom in the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Knowing I might come up short, but mm-hmm. still trying every morning yeah. and regardless our yeah. effort plus God's grace right? <laughs> right? relying on that yeah absolutely so you taught for did you teach for an extra year after I did yes okay I, I moved back to Cleveland for a year after I taught for two years in Richmond and I taught for one year in Cleveland mm-hmm. and then decided or how did this idea of returning to Notre Dame and this job as a rector come into play many of the dear friends that I'd had in ACE had spoken so highly of their time at Notre Dame and one of the things that they first mentioned is their time in the halls and their, their experience being in their dorm and, and what it was like, the community that was built there. And I was always fascinated by that. The, the residential system at John Carroll is a little bit different. You kind of move around different halls every year. And so that wasn't part of my experience. I had dear friends there, but same hall for three to four years was not, some, not part of my experience. So it was fascinating to hear about that. And I didn't really register as something that would be part of my life, but it was just something I was fascinated in and would ask a bunch of questions about. And so after my third year teaching, I, I knew that I was called to something a little bit different, knew I was looking to do something outside of the classroom. And so that's when I moved to Chicago with some, some good friends and sort of took a pretty drastic turn and spent time playing music full-time for a mm-hmm. year. Traveled around the country and also in Chicago, recorded an album and yeah, basically lived that very nomadic lifestyle, which was very unique uh, and wonderful in so many ways. But I found myself like rolling into a town with the mass times online being wrong, <laughs> showing up at like, <laughs> so like just very obvious, tangible signs of just like my falling away from 
from the spiritual practices I had held so dear. Mm -hmm. And so being on the road, just super isolating and incredibly just like a lot of time by myself. And so while I was on the road, I got a call from Father Pete McCormick, who at the time was in charge of rector recruitment. And he called and asked if I'd ever thought about it. And I never really had, but I'd heard so many great things about it. But I then spent the next few months really praying and thinking about, about it and realizing that what emptiness I may have been feeling from music was not playing music, was not creating music, but was the isolation of being by myself on the mm-hmm. road. And so therefore looking for something more fulfilling of my soul and what could be more fulfilling of, of one's soul than, than serving undergraduate students <laughs> as a rector. Well, some might debate that, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, in, in all honesty, the, the chance to contribute to the university's mission in yeah. such a profound way, I was just in awe of just the opportunity to interview for, for such a position. And so I knew classroom teaching wasn't going to be a forever vocation for me, but something I was grateful for and learned a lot from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now um, going on my sixth year as rector, I see so many of the great gifts of being a teacher and being a mentor, the, the ways that I've experienced in my life kind of with the ability to just sort of help students figure out where God's calling them. And so that for me gives me so much energy and so much life as just being a small part of students' journeys to figure out, you know, where ultimately they want to be in their life and how God's a part of that. Yeah. Well, and it's a really a sacred trust that rectors have in terms of caring for students and being with them, sometimes that they're most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. One topic we've been talking about this season on the podcast is the the abuse crisis in the church yeah. and when that trust by a sacred figure was violated. Mm-hmm. So I'd be interested to hear your take on the abuse crisis, maybe through the eyes of a rector and your thoughts on a way forward as, as we rebuild that trust as a church and for those in ministries like yours. Incredibly hard question. Uh, something that I think I'd pray a lot about and take very seriously in my role to, to help students grapple with it as well, because I think a lot of our students are trying to figure out what this means for them and what mm-hmm. this means for their church. Yeah, I had a lot of hard, hard conversations with students. For me, obviously, it's the church is the people, and the people are humans. And unfortunately, there are some people who've done some just unspeakably awful things as part of our church and with positions of power in our church. And as a rector, I view it as a chance to emphasize the great human aspects of of our church Mm -hmm. and the way that there's so many people who can build a road out of this. Mm -hmm. I see it in the 18-year-old first-year student who is on fire for the faith and wants to serve and wants to wants to talk about his faith and wants to talk about the great blessings in his life and wants to wants others to uncover blessings in their own life. And so for me, the failures of the church, the church being eternal, the human failures of the church, I think the way out is the human goodness of so many in the church. Mm. And I think emphasizing the, the goodness of those people and allowing them to, to be able to step forward and to, to have a voice. And I think just the, the genuine goodness of the people here at Notre Dame can take us a long way. And that's what gives me a great amount of hope. Both my, my vowed religious and lay colleagues, their capacity for, for caring for students and their capacity for thinking critically about the church and thinking thoughtfully about a way forward really gives me great hope that a problem caused by the sinfulness and evilness of some humans 
we can be led out of it by the goodness of, of many humans because thankfully the, the very good people far outweigh the, the bad. But as with anything, it's so important to, to atone for those who've been harmed and to care for them and to really hear what they went through and to be very supportive of them and listen well. And so that the people who are good and the people who have such goodness can, can act in ways that, that bring about healing. That's very helpful. Thank you. So being a rector is a pretty unique job. You've done it yourself for six years. You have a lot of colleagues who do it. How would you describe to someone encountering this for, for the first time, what, what's a day in the life of a rector? I think no two days are, are the same. Uh, <laughs> there's just a huge variety in things that might happen, but I think the ultimate responsibility of a rector is to, to care for their students and to help their, form, help their students' formation. And so for me, I view my primary responsibilities as helping the young men in my hall find God in their lives and find the way that, that their talents can best serve God. That looks any number of ways. That could be informal conversations. That could be designed programming to encourage such reflection. Or that could be chances to correct behavior that may be, uh, <laughs> may be outside of our, our university's standards of conduct. But in that process, help them figure out a path forward where they can do better. So I think a day in the life is really one of kind of being in charge of something of a small town <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and all the, the maintenance and upkeep required of, of that place, but more importantly, the souls that, that live there and mm. caring for them individually, knowing who they are, knowing them by name, and knowing what gets them out of bed in the morning, what what excites them, what what makes them come alive and help redirect that or help push that along towards serving God. I view that as my, my daily responsibilities. And it's something you've done for a few years now. Six years is not an insignificant amount of time, as right. you said, to live with a <laughs> hall full of undergraduates. Yep. What have been some of the graces that you've received that keep you going, keep you doing yeah. this? Absolutely. I think the chance to be present with young men when they're experiencing sometimes the greatest joy they've ever experienced and getting their dream job or an internship or something profoundly great happens to them, but also being with young men experiencing some of the hardest challenges that they've ever had, mm -hmm. just being with them, being a companion on their journey of sorting through that. That's an honor that no rector could ever earn, mm -hmm. but sort of the, the title of rector allows students to come to us in that way. And so I view it as such an incredible privilege to just be a part of the students' lives in that way and to, to hear their stories, hear authentically who they are and who they long to be. And I think that's one of the, the incredible graces of, of, of being a person living in a hall with the students and hearing the very authentic ways that they want to be good. And I think also the chance to hear from students just the, the ways that they see the world, the ways that they see our church, the ways they see each other. It's very hopeful and it's very exciting to be a part of and to be in the midst of. There's a lot of grace in just the joy of community and the humor that comes in living together and the, <laughs> the, the funny things that happen, the unexpected things that happen. But seeing the goodness that, that exists in all of them and in some cases, the, they're on the path to goodness and they're, they're working on it. <laughs> uh, but just seeing how they care for each other, seeing how they look out for one another is such a profound honor. And it really helps instill in me 
a reminder of how how important it is to to be our brother's keeper and to care for each other mm-hmm. beyond just the walls of, of not hall but at our university and in our church worldwide and, and throughout the world mm-hmm. have you found that the experience of watching your dad suffer for as long as he did of losing him at a young age it's of course something you would never wish to happen but did you find that that gave you a capacity for empathy with your students that you might not otherwise have had yeah i think so i think by virtue of of what was happening i was forced to grow up pretty quickly mm-hmm. and to take on a lot of responsibilities i hadn't anticipated and to kind of just have a bit of a different upbringing that does allow me to have the disposition of understanding that i don't know anything about the person coming into my room if i haven't met you know haven't met them yet and mm-hmm. just assuming in the best way possible that they have a story and their story their story is important to know and to honor and whatever they have on their mind is is very hard for them and could be very challenging and so i think it has given me a, a sense of perspective and a sense of of knowing that there's a lot of battles people are fighting mm-hmm. and i cause it's not readily apparent always i think from a young age i've known that to be true that there's a lot of pain in the world and I have a responsibility to, when I can, be open to listening to people share and to trying to lessen their burden in whatever way possible. And the rector role lends itself to that pretty regularly. And you talked about a devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. Yep. And I think about Mary and some of the hidden wounds that she carried. And yet it seems like, as a rector, that's a chance for you to see really into people's hearts and, and see some of the wounds that you might not otherwise know, even if you were a teacher or a coach. And there are chances there for that as well, but Rector seems to be uniquely positioned to really grapple with and help people understand the sorrows that they're carrying. Has yeah. that been true in your experience? Absolutely. And it's, it's certainly a challenge and it's very difficult, but it's something that's so important is to be able to to be attentive to students who are going through struggles that may not be obvious. And for me, I look to Mary again for that. Mary throughout scripture is so good at noticing, so good at mm. knowing the right thing to do and also just being aware of what's going on. And yeah. They're out of wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she has to point that out yeah. to everybody. So she's good at noticing. And so in my prayers every morning before I kind of open my door for the day and begin the day, I, I pray to, to be like Mary, to be mm. able to, to notice well and to to care for students that maybe don't know they need need uh, one of our services on campus or something. And mm-hmm. so for me, that begins with trying to know the guys well and relying upon the great staff that I have to know the guys well. And to it could just be the way someone says hello to you or, or doesn't say hello to you or, or you know, the conversation is short and, and different than it was in the past. And that gives you an indication something's going on. And But those wounds aren't always on the surface. So like Mary, I try, to, I try to notice well, and I try to do what I can to support those students that sometimes might be a ways off from even admitting that they, they need, need help or need, mm-hmm. need something, but at least providing the space for them to feel comfortable to, to come forward if, if, they, if they need something. Yeah. I think that's such a necessary thing, especially in the time of life that students find themselves as they're figuring out their identity and, and who they are. So a really valuable ministry. I would like to talk some about music because you mentioned 
this year of being on the road in music and music being a part of your life. So could you describe that to us, why music is important to you? And while you're not out on the road full time <laughs> now, what place does music have in your life right now? Yeah. Well, the short answer to why I'm not on the road is I'm, I'm not good enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for me, music has always been a, a, a thing that, that brought me great solace and great peace listening to music. Sure. It brought me just a, a great amount of calmness. My father was a really great musician. He he played guitar and sang and sort of played at a bunch of people's weddings and uh, was known to do that. One of my strongest memories of my dad, I don't have a lot of them, but mm-hmm. one of my strongest memories is of him when he wasn't on the road tucking me in at night and we'd pray and then he would always sing me a song. We'd say our nightly prayers and then he sang and for the most part he sang Mr. Tambourine Man by Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> And I love that song. And um, But I think for me, at a very young age, prayer and music were, were linked and were tied together. That's what it is for me currently. When I, was, when I moved into college my freshman year, my brothers bought me a guitar. And I um, slowly learned, God bless my freshman year roommate who had to hear me, <laughs> who had to hear me just kind of stump, stumble in through. In the early days. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> but for me, it was very quick from the time of learning a chord or two to the time of wanting to write, wanting to compose, wanting to put thoughts into a song and to, to write a song. And so so for me, that, that became a, a primary entry point to prayer for me was was writing songs. And then, and then praying well led me to want to write songs more. And so it became this really, I think, beautiful cycle for me, sort of like a cyclical thing that, that sustained my, my prayer life. Yeah, so I, I wrote a, a ton of songs in college and... I never really played them for anybody. It was just like a thing I did. And then it wasn't until I was in ACE here at Notre Dame where I had some very, uh, we'll call them assertive friends that just said, <laughs> yeah. okay, you're just, you're just, you're going to play a oh, song for us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, okay, no better place than Notre Dame to give it a try. And so I played it and they were very kind. I played, played them a handful of songs. They were very kind. They didn't offer immediately incredibly mean feedback. So <laughs> they weren't incredibly critical, but it just became something that, I thought, well, if these few folks enjoy these songs, then maybe others would as well. Mm-hmm. And so it became just something I thought about distributing more widely. And I'm very uninterested in the music business and just the, the part of, of, of that end of things. But I really love the process of writing songs. Yeah. And the fact that some people enjoy them encourages me to, to share them widely, just allow people that want to hear them to, to hear them and to hopefully identify things that are important to them and I think anybody that knows me and knows my music knows how integral faith is into to all my compositions and all my songs it sort of happened by accident but it's become something that's just really a big part of my free time that I have and really setting me up in the proper disposition to pray well is, is writing songs hmm. is that how you approach songwriting through prayer first or how do how does inspiration come to you yeah, I'm usually trying to, in whatever way possible, write something that's useful, either to myself or to other people, something that maybe down the road could be of use. And more often than not, when it's for myself, it's for some exploration of, of faith and some exploration of prayer. But I think just grappling with loss, grappling with sadness, grappling with the the darkness that people can feel is something that I... I tend to write a lot about, and people tend to tell me my songs are sad. (laughs) 
but I don't, I don't look at them that way, right. but I, I think I, I can't tell people how to hear them. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it's, it's just so important to just be able to authentically write what I think is important to share in a given, in a given song. And, and for me to tell a story, to, to have a chance to create a, a large story in a small package. I think it's such a incredible challenge. Like for me, it's, so hard to write a song it's so so hard and i love that it's just like it's like really really challenging it's kind of like trying to distill a novel into a grain of rice like Mm. have this hugely complex ideas onto this very tiny three-minute canvas and i i love the challenge of that every word every breath is important it's incredibly cool to me to have the chance to try that out yeah that's really neat there's a certain aspect of performance especially in front of a crowd putting out an album, mm-hmm. being on Spotify, wherever it is, that <laughs> there's a certain amount of gratification that comes from the applause and the adulation or the admiration. How do you balance that with you do have a skill, you have a gift from God, you have obviously a, a depth of emotion and, and things that you can put through music, so how do you balance that sort of desire to to write something useful, as you say, with some of the trappings of, <laughs> of success and attention that, that sometimes come with performance? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when playing a song for other people and people clapping, that feels really good, and that's mm-hmm. great to hear. But I think it's really important that I not get caught up in that, that I not focus on how other people feel about it. There's maybe a small part in all of us, but definitely in me, and maybe it's larger in me than others that like can only be filled up by the applause of strangers or something, you know, like some, some weird, it doesn't really make sense, but like, you know, like the, the, the validation from people that you don't know, yeah, be like, yeah. Oh yeah, they don't have to be nice to you. <laughs> exactly. So I think for me, if I'm seeking that out, I'm not at my best. I'm not, I'm not my best self and I'm not being as prayerful as I should. And so I love, I love playing music for people and I love the chance to to share the songs that I've written and to share the stories that I've come up with. But for me, I, I try not to focus on people's reactions or people providing adulation or, or kind words. It, it's, in, it's incredibly uh, wonderful and humbling to hear kind words about my music. But for me, I try to remain as, as distant as possible from those things and, and just try to do what I'm most called to in that moment when in terms of writing. Cause I think, this is probably a defense mechanism in some ways, but if I believe all the good things people say, then I have to believe the the negative things too. Uh, so I tend to just be like, well, everyone's going to have their opinion yeah, and I'm, I'm not really going to take it into yeah. too much account. But I think there is a, a danger for, for me or for any, I, mean, I suppose anybody who performs for other people to like get caught up in, in how good that feels. And I have felt that at times, but I always feel most accomplished when I'm, just sitting at my kitchen table in Knot Hall, writing the song and seeing it find its conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's far more fulfilling to me than, than hearing applause of, of other people, yeah. at least when I'm in a good disposition and praying well. Yeah. yeah. Is that why you chose a stage name? Was that related <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. your desire uh, to, be a, <laughs> to be a stranger? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, partially that, partially just not wanting to like embarrass my family, I suppose, in some way. <laughs> But I, yeah, I, I decided to to record under under a different name in part to retain some anonymity when I was down in Virginia and playing around just because I thought you know if if this goes just really poorly <laughs> I just I can leave town and no one actually knows who I am. 
<laughs> yeah, because because performing is such a I'm not a, a very extroverted person. It's not something I it comes naturally to me. I, I love it, but it's I always joke with whoever's in charge of the club or the the bar or cafe that I'm playing at right before I go on, I'll always turn to them and say, can you get me out of this? And then it's just like, it's a joke that I tell myself just to like remind myself how absurd it is to play. But I decided early on, I wanted to just play under a different name and I wanted to honor my grandmothers. My grandmother was Winifred Patton and Patricia Nolan. And so I used both of their last names. So Nolan Patton Mm -hmm. is the name I use. I wanted to honor them because they were significant figures in my family's story and my yeah. family's life and I wanted to have a chance to honor their legacy and to help their their memory live on so mm-hmm. every time I write music or do something I'm I see that I see that name and I'm reminded of them yeah I think that's important for me to be connected with them yeah that that's way. really that's a really beautiful testament to to them and, and who they continue to be and how they touch your life well, that's a good segue into models of holiness, which is something we always talk about with each guest. Who have some of the models of holiness been for you, and how are you seeking after holiness in your life as a rector mm-hmm. and as just a follower of Christ? I've been I've been so incredibly blessed to have a great number of models of holiness for me and people that have so so wonderfully given of their time, given of their self to me. I think my parents would be an initial model of holiness for me, of really forming me to be the person that I am and uh, providing a, a loving home for me from a young age. And then uh, my mother really assuming so much more of the mantle of things when my father became ill, her capacity for generosity, her capacity for selflessness, and her ability to seemingly always think about other people is something that I really aspire to. And then a gentleman named Jim Skrull, who was a theology teacher at my high school, he was one of the ones that sort of took on a father figure role to me. He unfortunately passed uh, a few years ago of pancreatic cancer, but his, his influence in my life, I can't possibly quantify because he, he was supportive of me and helped me in a really dark time. But then knew that I wasn't one to just like rest on that. He really challenged me in really profound ways to, to think about serving other people and using some of the woundedness that I have to care for other people. He, at my high school, really challenged all of us to serve out the corporal works of mercy. Uh, that was his, one of his big pushes. And so serve the homeless, visit the imprisoned. He also he encouraged us to figure out some way to live out, bury the dead. And so we, when I was in high school, we started a, a pallbearer society, the St. Joseph of Arimathea pallbearer society mm-hmm. and serving at dozens of funerals of people I never knew. Basically we served for people who were, didn't have families or yeah. who passed without the financial means to have a funeral. And so his constant desire to build up the church and to care for other people and his ability to connect with people is something that I have always wanted to be, always wanted to strive for. But his his holiness as a person of prayer and as a person that that treated every single person he met like they were the most imper- important person in the world, whether it was a, a person on the street experiencing homelessness, he treated that person with dignity in a way that I couldn't imagine 
And as a 15, 16 year old kid seeing that, it just completely shattered, just shattered my perception of what, what humility and goodness could be. Mm -hmm. And I have been seeking that ever since. So his, his model to me of, of goodness in that way is something that I have always sort of wanted to hold up and, and, and follow. Yeah. And the word that keeps coming to my mind as you describe all these people is mentor, Mm -hmm. that you had so many mentors and exemplars along the way from your parents and your older brothers and these uh, priests and teachers in high school to the people in ACE that you, some peers that you got to meet, that mentors have been such an important part of your life. And now you're doing that that mm-hmm. through your teaching, even through your music of, of helping people understand their suffering, but especially as a rector, I just can only imagine the mentor that you have been to hundreds and hundreds of undergraduate students and what a gift that is for you, but what a gift that is that you've given, that you've been willing to, to live your life in that way. Yeah, and I, when I think about the role of rector and then residential life as a, as sort of in many ways, the heartbeat of the university, Mm -hmm. something that we really, really focus on to form our students. I think about the people that lead residential life and, and the, the way that they prayerfully guide us. And for me, I, again, model them. I, I look to, to serve in the ways that they, that they, they themselves serve. It's just a, a way to try to align my faith and my actions in a, in, a, in a way that's outward. I think my natural inclination is to, to remain relatively introverted. Mm-hmm. But as a rector, I have to go out into the community quite a bit and talk to folks, and I love that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I thrive on that, and it's something I really enjoy. And the mentorship that I offer, however good it is, I think is directly proportional to the goodness I've been shown in my life and the, the grace that God has given me to, to be in this place. I still, I still wake up every day just so incredibly grateful and, and honored to, to be a part of this university in any small way and to have a chance to be a part of such an important aspect of the university's function, the mm-hmm. residential mission that we serve. I sometimes just can't get over <laughs> what, a, what an honor that is. Yeah. Uh, and so I take it very seriously. And so I, I do all I can to, to try to live up to such an incredible legacy and to live up to the people that that helped me get here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's evident to me that, that that is happening and that you played a big part in a lot of students' lives. And I know their parents and Notre Dame and we as the Alumni Association are grateful to you for helping form our future alumni. And just for your time today, Patrick, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a really an honor to talk to you and touch on some incredible topics within your story. So just thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. We invite you to sign up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. There, in addition to hearing about future episodes of the podcast, you will also receive a daily email from a member of the Notre Dame community reflecting on that day's gospel. Until our next episode, we thank you for being with us, and we hope to have you with us next time. Mm